Before we start the show, here's a brief message from our sponsor, Deputy. In healthcare, there are smart pieces of technology that businesses cannot live without. Deputy has become one of those essential platforms for more than 250,000 workplaces. It's helping medical practices schedule their staff more efficiently to meet peaks in patient demand. And it makes it easy to adjust scheduled when the unexpected happens, such as a member of your staff calling out sick. You can use Deputy on any device and on the go. Within minutes of picking it up, you'll see why it has hundreds of glowing reviews from managers and staff alike. To find out more and to try Deputy for free, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. The other thing that I think came up with these cases was that not all labs and not all medical results are treated the same. So, I mean, this is a case of failing to deliver or properly delivering news of HIV status. And there are other, we call them sensitive pieces of information. I mean, all, all medical information is, con at least in theory, considered sensitive. But some is more sensitive than others. So HIV status is considered to be particularly sensitive. Information about substance abuse is considered sensitive. Sexually transmitted diseases, uh, psychiatric uh, history. And I think it's just important to be extra vigilant about protecting privacy, particularly when something is considered by the public to be particularly uh, sensitive. So I one thing that you will see, and Mike, you can speak more eloquently on this than, than I can, on your standard HIPAA authorization forms, people are signing away or giving authorization to transmit protected health information from point A to point B. But on many of these forms, there's an extra checkbox, an extra checkbox for the sensitive nuggets of information. Uh, sexually transmitted diseases, uh, psychiatric history, substance abuse, et cetera. So on, on these forms, you have to take the affirmative step of saying, not only can you send the record, I give you extra permission or extra authorization to deliver these, these particularly sensitive pieces of information. If you're, you're right. And that's, I think we wouldn't have had these, these two cases if we were talking about something other than, than HIV, what if it was um, uh, triglyceride levels, right? I mean, nobody's going to say, you didn't tell me that my triglyceride levels were so elevated and then therefore I'm going to sue. It's the nature of the, uh, the, the test results and the societal stigma, or rightly or wrongly, associated uh, with that. And so 
there are definitely certain pieces of information that the public feels is far more sensitive uh, than others, although the law generally uh, treats all protected health information with a level of confidentiality. So <clears throat> be, be warned and uh, certainly take those sensitivities into account when, when dealing with people. Do you think it makes sense that any HIPAA authorization that a patient signs and you're the, let's say you're the um, repository for that information, should you have the patient affirmatively sign off on these pieces of sensitive information? I mean, many practices have them in their records and they probably don't give it a second thought. They're just data dumping the entire, if the patient says ship the record, they just ship everything. Um, so the question is, should you be particularly um, sensitive to what types of information is being shipped or should you just have the patient sign off on saying you ship everything um, unless told otherwise? My concern is that if you have the patient sign off on, you know, affirmatively initial everything, you could send my psych history, substance abuse, STDs, et cetera, um, and you don't get it right, I do think you will burn. So I, I, I'm trying yeah. to find that, the right balance between, um, you know, doing what the patient wants and respecting their rights, but not making a, a foolish error. No, it's, it, it, it's a good point. And oftentimes, I think patients don't realize what all is going into their, their records. If it's, if it's a primary care, there could be a, a psych eval that got put into the primary care records and the patient's thinking, but I didn't deal with this physician on those issues, not realizing that consult reports are, are coming into their, their general records at the primary care uh, level. And so that's kind of the other side of it, right, is that they're releasing something and they, what they think that they're releasing is their normal uh, blood work and, and physicals, uh, never thinking that other physicians' information has made its way into the primary care chart. Now, most of our audience is going to say, well, that's obvious and people should know that, but I'm, I'm telling you the general public uh, silos physicians and will think that I went to so-and-so for these issues and therefore that person's records are not going to be in my other uh, physician's uh, chart uh, for me. And that's just not always the case. So that's why I believe people try to uh, get uh, signatures uh, to release all, all information. It's a it's a bit of a balancing act. You're right. If you don't do it correctly, then uh, there's badness will uh, will ensue. I think the thing that's fascinating with the emergence of national players with electronic health records, um, this information is siloed centrally in in many cases, tied to you know unique identifiers like your name, date of birth, etc. And while some of the facilities that use these natu national vendors um, affirmatively ask whether they can share your information with um, other healthcare systems that may use the same vendor. Um, so you'd have to sign off on that. What I have seen is that even when I've taken no such step, my information is located in other healthcare systems portals. And through no step of my own and through no affirmative action of my own, somehow the data, um, I don't find it to be particularly sensitive information, but I, I know that with some healthcare systems, I am asked whether I can share this information with other healthcare systems. I've never seen that question in any capacity, and I'm one of the few people that actually reads um, the, 
the long detailed terms of use for using the portal, it still finds its way into other healthcare system portals. And um, I don't know that the practice is responsible for that. I would argue they're not. And it may be a function of who is setting up the, you know, the portal for the healthcare system. But these are accidents waiting to happen. I think if you believe as a patient, your information is um, religiously siloed um, electronically in a system, I don't know what you're smoking, but um, it's... Well, you, you know what, you're, you're exactly right that um, this, is, this is an issue for patient, and I think one way it plays out, we've seen some national studies on this, is that patients are withholding information from uh, their physicians as to certain sensitive things because they're afraid that it will be shared. And there are studies out there now that show north of 15% of patients admit that they have withheld information because they were afraid if it was entered into an electronic system, it would be... Uh, be out of their control and, and shared elsewhere. This is a problem that's not being uh, talked about, and it's difficult, as you know better than I do, to trade a patient that is withholding information uh, from you. And this is one of the consequences, I think, of the electronic age that's not been well addressed yet. Well, there are two problems associated with it. So one is the the share the unanticipated sharing of information from one healthcare system to another so that it's in this giant repository, this giant portal, if you will. So if you went to a particular doctor for a very sensitive healthcare condition, you assumed it was going to be a one-on-one -on -one interaction. Uh, but if it turns out that this information is shared broadly amongst many healthcare systems, well, surprise, to, uh, surprise, surprise. But the other challenge, which I think you alluded to is even in systems, electronic systems that are well tended, that are guarded, they're at risk for hacking and ransomware. We've seen that with a number of healthcare systems that have made it to the news, and there are probably others that have not made it to the news. And the the strategy for criminals engaged in ransomware has changed. It used to be, hey, look, we won't. Um, um, we've, we've encrypted all of your records so you can't run your system operationally. Pay us X bitcoins by a particular deadline and we'll give you the key to decrypt and you can, you can go back to doing business. So that was the before picture. Now with sensitive information, they add kidnapping or hostage holding, if you will. Basically, they're saying, we have your sensitive information. We know how important this is to you. Not only are we going to shut you down operationally, but we're going to start releasing this protected health information one by one until you pay us the money. And by the way, the longer you wait, the higher the price. This is not dissimilar to the theory um, that if you have kidnapped you know, 500 people and you have a time-limited demand for ransom, and that ransom is not being paid, they start shooting hostages, you know, one per hour. And, you know, this is this is something that no institution can withstand. I mean, the fact that somebody is releasing very sensitive health information um, over time, it makes it almost impossible to to say we're not going to pay the money. So it's not just a matter of getting back up to speed operationally, because some systems 
um, may have adequate backups and they can probably get up to speed uh, ra uh, rather quickly. But the strategy with ransomware seems to have changed with sensitive information being kept in electronic vaults. That has made the healthcare system a thousand times, perhaps billions of times more vulnerable than it was when we were just using paper records and, and bitching about the paper records. I mean, there's no doubt that we've benefited by having transfer of information from point A to point B, but the fact that this information can be hacked and held for ransom and disclosed as a hostage um, puts up puts us in a um, in a new universe that I, I'm not sure we've quite figured out how to make this uh, how to make this work properly. You're you're right, and now with ransomware attacks being more publicized and in, in hitting industries outside of healthcare, oil pipelines, meat manufacturers, you, you, you name it, um, we're starting to see Congress become involved, saying that uh, industry has a duty to not pay uh, ransoms and to report things immediately. There's some legislation that looks like it's going to be uh, proposed on these kind of lines. Uh, we should all shudder when we think of uh, the United States uh, Congress getting involved in some of these uh, these issues uh, is a reflex to uh, pipeline uh, problems because healthcare is clearly uh, different. The other point that I, I want to make is so oftentimes I'm talking to people and they say, I have a small practice as though somehow the small practice is off of the radar and you're not is in much of a threat of ransomware. That is completely untrue. Some of the worst cases I've seen have been with uh, small uh, practices. The solo uh, psychiatrist in Bangor, Maine, who has all of uh, his records uh, ransomed and you know, things are going to get published uh, locally. I mean, these are one-off practices. They can't sustain this kind of thing. So you need to be uh, very vigilant. And this is a plea for cyber insurance. Uh, for sure, because these are all very expensive issues to deal with if they hit you. Does cyber insurance uh, potentially pay a ransom for ransomware? I mean, cyber insurance is working it, uh, working through, and there are some uh, policies out there that um, that that will, in fact, uh, that it could be it could be covered. That that's right. It, they're all very uh, sensitive as to, to how they're written, and there, there's not a real uniformity in the cyber insurance world right now on these kind of issues. But yes, that is that is uh, is possible. It's interesting. We we saw the analog uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago with rash of kidnappings in uh, Central South America and Africa with executives of large multinational firms being kidnapped. And what was the solution? The solution apparently was kidnapping insurance. And the way I heard this described on a recent podcast was that all parties seem to have been satisfied with the new equilibrium, meaning that the kidnappers wanted a return on their investment, okay? They, they wanted their industry, in this case, kidnapping to, um, to be lucrative for the foreseeable future. They didn't want to sh have it shut down. The multinational companies wanted to make sure that they could do business in these uh, parts of the world. The executives, of course, wanted to make sure they weren't going to die. So the combination of these parties cr apparently created this equilibrium. And it's interesting, the 
I think that as it relates to ransomware, if the problem cannot be solved from a technical standpoint, then the question ultimately comes down to, um, can the industry support some type of insurance solution that ultimately addresses this? But um, I, I'm not sure it's solvable at the scale that it was addressed with kidnapping uh, insurance. Um, and, and by the way, kidnapping insurance was particularly expensive and the people who were um, who were purchasing it were large multinational uh, organizations paying for the lives of their executives that were being you know, paid multi-million dollar salaries. Um, as to whether this will scale and you can address lower ransoms and it's an affordable, prob uh, an affordable problem to be solved remains to be seen. I think we live in interesting times right now and it's not entirely clear uh, how we're going to, uh, to solve that. That is uh, an understatement. So before we um, close out, I do want to bring up um, yet another interesting case related to release of protected health information, unintended, uh, of course. And in this particular case, it was HIV information. It was a large insurance company that was paying the bills for one of the more expensive treatments for HIV, I believe it was oral medication. Um, I can't recall precisely who the large, what, or, um, what large insurance company was in the crosshairs, but they were trying to alert subscribers or policyholders that you can get cheaper medications by ordering a 90-day supply and it'll get delivered discreetly to your doorstep, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so on the surface, that sounds like a good thing. But in this particular case, the envelopes that the, the envelopes that were sent out had this cellophane transparent window, which had the patient, you know, the policyholders name and address, but it was an unusually large transparent cellophane window and it said something to the effect of to get your HIV medication for 90 day supply. So they were delivering through the mail uh, the information related to who was HIV positive. And I know this turned into a class action lawsuit. I don't know precisely what the outcome was, but I, I cannot imagine that that was easily uh, defended. What are your thoughts? Do you remember that case? No, I, I, I do remember that um, that case, and I think we can all assume that there's a new person in charge of purchasing envelopes. Um, <laughs> it clearly somebody ordered the wrong envelopes for that letter. Um, right. The, the, these kind of things uh, you know, ha happen, unfortunately, and just have to be, be dealt with. But, yes, even... Even old uh, snail mail has some some risk uh, to it, but by far the biggest risk is is electronically now with things being hacked into and and um, ransom ransomware. I'll close with something I read in Wired magazine, and it it didn't happen in the United States. Apparently, it happened in Finland. But somebody <clears throat> was creating an alternative to the traditional socialized medicine interaction for. Uh, psychology, uh, psychological counseling, psychiatric counseling. So they created a virtual model where people wouldn't have to make an appointment and go through the primary government-based system to 
you know, to get therapy, um, psychological and psychiatric therapy. And so it was, it was a bit of a parallel system. And it started with uh, small clinics, and then they, they merged and became a much larger uh, entity. But my understanding is they didn't, the IT people didn't patch their systems timely. And they didn't have a particularly sophisticated information technology department. They had people who, who were, who had the background in IT, but I'm not sure they knew how to properly run firewalls and um, were focused on security. And they got, they got hacked and their information was released and it was done the way we described earlier, you know, like killing a hostage where they would release nuggets of particularly sensitive information if not paid timely and the information went out to the dark web then more and more people were threatening other people and ultimately the this large entity um created filed for bankruptcy and uh and everybody was pretty irritated with uh, what what happened I, I think the initial discussion with the hacking said well we'll help you monitor your credit or something like that it, it this wasn't it wasn't, um, I don't think they quite understood the impact of how sensitive information is treated differently than just your financial records, you know, and that somebody's going to try and open up a credit card in your name. You'd think just having the records in Finnish would be enough to protect them, but <laughs> apparently, apparently not. Um, as a segue, uh, my wife and I went to visit Helsinki several years ago, and I don't think I'm wrong when I state this, that one of the street names was so long, was so long that I'm not sure it would have fit into the initial constraints on Twitter when, I don't know if it's 140 characters or not, but the street name was longer than that. And I realized then and there that I will never, never be proficient and I will not be picking up the Rosetta Stone uh, to, uh, to, learn, to learn that language. But fortunately, most of the people in Helsinki spoke fluent English, or at least passable English. All right, any take-home points? I think the take-home points we talked about as it relates to delivery of, of laboratory information. By labs, we mean MR scans, x-rays, path reports, uh, and so on, is develop a standard operating protocol and ideally have more than one person um, focused on the workflow I think anything you can do to change the default assumption of a patient that no news is good news to no news is no news will only work for you because inevitably we are all human. Sometimes things fall through the cracks. And I think the more options you give a patient to understand that no news is no news, the better you will fare if this turns into litigation. I think those are my two most important take-home points. Mike, any concluding thoughts? No, I think that those are the, the key take-home uh, points to this. Well said. All right. We thank everyone for joining us today with the Medical Liability Minute, and we will catch you next time. Before we end, a brief message from our sponsor, Deputy. If you want to boost efficiency across your practice and make staff scheduling easier, try the Deputy app. You can try this smart technology for free by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. That's drpodcastnetwork.com 
slash deputy. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.